What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's Memorial Day weekend and the unofficial start to summer, a time when some of us seek to empty out our minds and head to the hills. But there's another alternative, and that's to push our horizons to new places. Our guest today, Mickey Kendall, has written a book called Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot. And that will ricochet off all your previous assumptions and conveniences of thought about race, privilege, and gender politics. We leave the theoretical ideological perch and live right in the hood to learn about its needs, wants, and to overlook dreams. Hood feminism is to be read and acted upon by women everywhere and their partners. We're privileged to speak with you today. Welcome, Mickey. Thank you for having me. I think that really you are going to be not just a pioneer in the moment, but for the distance, um, because you have relied on direct observation. You've set aside the preconceived narratives that we're supposed to listen to and found your own. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Hood feminism, I'll give our listeners just a brief rundown. A potent and electrifying critique of today's feminist movement announcing a fresh new voice in black feminism. In her searing collection of essays, Mickey Kendall takes aim at the legitimacy of the modern feminist movement, arguing that it has chronically failed to address needs of all but a few women. Drawing on her own experiences with hunger, violence, and hypersexualization, along with incisive commentary on politics, pop culture, the stigma of mental health, and more, Hood Feminism delivers an irrefutable, irrefutable indictment of a movement in flux. It's an unforgettable debut. Kendall has written a ferocious clarion call to all would-be feminists to live out the true mandate of the movement in thought and deed. It's a best book of 2020 by Bustle, BBC, and Time, a New York Times bestseller, a Washington Post notable book of 2020. So, Mickey, 2020, in some ways, the pandemic mimics the fear and paranoia and medical concerns and safety concerns that people of uh, color, women of color experience daily. In your view, has it made us more empathic? Is the massive success of your book a signal that we are tuning in? Or what does its success mean to you? I think in some ways the book's success is because it resonates with the people who already have this experience and the people who are beginning to have this experience. One of the interesting things about the last year, which has been obviously traumatic and upsetting, is how many people suddenly had to realize that their neighbors, people they knew casually, whatever, didn't believe that they had a right to exist, right? We kept seeing all of these weird fan fictions of science come up, right? Well, the masks don't work. The virus isn't real. All of these things. Meanwhile, obviously it was real. People were dying. And I think for a lot of people who had maybe been able to exist in a bubble, the bubble was popped by 2020. Mm -hmm. A lot of social safety nets that people thought they would need, they needed, and they weren't there. Exactly. It exposed that uh, absence, right? Uh, I think also mm-hmm. denial, denial, denial of medicine, denial of science, and denial of existence. It's something that I think people of color, um, indigenous people, you know, women have contended with for a very long time. And when it went in the face of white folks, you know, we were horrified. How can you deny this? Uh, but 
it is something that has plagued um, neighborhoods, communities of color and of LGBTQIA, where, you know, there was just this denial that these needs could be real, that the need for acknowledgement and for basic services. How did you come to a point where you started to positively identify that it was on the ground, hands-on um, services and, and accessibility that people needed, contrary to what was the popular belief? So there is this sort of weird respectability-based idea that if you do the right things, you'll never need help, right? But I was a single mom. I lived in the projects. And if you hear that part of the story, you hear, well, you got pregnant, he left, blah, blah, blah. Actually, we met in the military. We were married. We got divorced because he couldn't keep his hands to himself or anything else to himself, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And he was from a good home, yada, yada, grew up in East Texas, white guy, the whole mythos that we sort of build up that other people leave their kids, but not responsible white men. (laughs) None of this is true. And it can happen in any community. But what was interesting was that in the aftermath, people were quick to tell me I couldn't succeed. I was going to fail, and I am a person fueled in some ways by spite. If you tell me I cannot do a thing, it is almost guaranteed I'm going to try harder than ever to do it, just to prove you wrong. Mm -hmm. But also along the way, I'm applying for programs. I'm hearing people, in some cases, who run those programs, right, food stamps, medical cards, all of that, say, well, why don't you just drop out and go work at McDonald's? I, to this day, cannot tell you what good dropping out of college would have done me or my child, right? Right. I've paid more back in taxes than I ever got from the system, all of these things. But it could happen to anyone. I was a veteran. I was a married mother and a veteran, and I needed a a hand getting back on my feet after a divorce. So why do we then think, that somehow magically, if you make these right choices at this stage, quote unquote, you will then never have to face a problem. Anything Mm -hmm. can happen. Natural disasters can happen. We saw that with Texas, for instance. A lot of those people, they had jobs. They had, they owned their own homes. It didn't matter because the power grid failed. Right. And going back to New Orleans before that, I mean, you know, Uh we're replete, no lack of examples. I wonder about this idea, I mean, I love that you're motivated by spite and that this uh, impetus of people telling you that you're limited to this scope. Um, Yeah, it's great if we get a minimum wage increase, but, you know, the point is not to work at McDonald's. That is beside the point. You were catapulted by this sense of proving people wrong. What about, I mean, there, you talk also about people who may feel that way, but become despairing in the absence of support mechanisms. You had a grandmother, you had certain people that held you accountable, held your toes to the fire. When you don't have these kinds of support, or you don't believe you have access, or you don't believe you're deserving of access, doesn't that open the gateway to mental health issues and, you know, and survival issues? Well, and this is one of the places where privilege by way of being a veteran comes into play, right? And if someone's going to say, that's not privilege, you earn that. But still, the access to mental health care, to free medical care, those are things that make a person like me possible right? I had loving family members. I had really amazing friends, all of these things. But a lot of times we create obstacles for communities, for people in those communities, and then we blame them for not being able to overcome all the obstacles. Right. When really, I, I could tell you, oh, I did it by myself and I, you know, it was just spite. It was just this. It was just that. But there are various points where I saw a therapist. There are various points. I didn't have to pay for it because, again, I'm a veteran. Um, There are various points where 
I did despair where I did think I wasn't going to make it. And I had a friend to call all of these things. If we normalize the idea that everyone had a right to access mental health care, that everyone had a right to access basic support systems, we would all be doing so much better as a society, right? Crime rates go down, all of the things we say we're concerned with. Well, people who are not having to figure out how to get to their next meal at every single moment generally do better um, than, than people who are stuck in survival mode. You make very different decisions when you have good choices in front of you than when you, all you have in front of you are bad choices. Right. And I also, I, I go back to the idea of vulnerability. I mean, there's a real vulnerability that's in like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You, you If you don't have basic security and safety, that's mm-hmm. number one. You, you really can't get beyond that without tripping and falling down again, constantly getting back. You know, it's, it's very uh, tenuous hold. And yet, the, you know, stereotype, one of the many that you dismantle in hood feminism is that of the strong black woman. So the woman who is tough, uh, too tough maybe for her only good, her own good, and maybe because of, look at the distance that black women and people of color have had to come, um, you know, that there is a reticence to ask for help, that there's a reticence to seem vulnerable to seem anything but strong because let's face it you need to seem strong in a certain way to be on the hood in the streets and you know there's a kind of conundrum to it um at some point you opened yourself up and i wonder if you feel that holding yourself out as an example of someone who did that um helps others feel that they can do that too without relinquishing power I I did not intend to hold myself out as an example, but I have since found out. Um, one of the messages I do get almost more consistently than I would have ever thought possible is from young women who thank me for being open and public about being poor, about needing help, about not being perfect. And it's, I don't want to say it's odd, but it feels odd to have someone thank you for telling the truth about yourself, right? Because what they get from it, it turns out, I didn't know this when this started, is that it's okay for them to reach out for help, to get to fall, to not make all the right choices, to not be perfect. I was just telling my story. But I think we sometimes expect people to be perfect in their poverty, to be you know, exemplary in order to deserve assistance or help or to be seen as worthwhile. And that's just impossible. Mm-hmm. I think the lethal so word... I see, that, yeah, go ahead. So I was going to say, so I see a lot of people suddenly realizing there's no shame in needing help. And I want people to take that away from this book. There's nothing wrong with needing to ask for help. You should be able to get help. The problem is that you need help. The problem is that you're in a situation where you don't have all the resources you need. And the lethal word, I think, is deserve, because we all deserve. It's a birthright. It's not a matter of being perfect, having done the right things. Um, Imperfection is, I think, part of the province of being human, but apparently it's relegated to white privilege so that, you know, the concept of forgiveness, the Judeo-Christian concept of forgiveness actually applies, right? You can just keep, you can goof up mm-hmm. and you can get forgiveness and you can move on, but not if you're a person of color, then you're blamed. So there's this very double standard there. Um, you're held to a different set of standards in the first place. And where's the room for second chances? Where's the room for all of the things that that white people enjoy uh, the ability to move on. Part of that is incarceration, and we'll get to that in a moment. But you also have come out, Mickey, as saying that you were in 
that you were a survivor of a physically abusive relationship. This also feels extremely important to me. The, the removing the sense of shame of being a survivor, that poverty is shameful, we should be doing better, there's a judgment there. I think that all of these things are endemic in the self-concept of people of color. You have a lot of work ahead of you in something that you maybe just started. Do you have that sense that this is actually a movement? I, I think that in many ways I am joining an existing movement towards better mental health, towards acknowledging basic humanity amongst ourselves and with each other between communities. But I think also there's something in being validated that you deserve to exist right? That you deserve access and opportunity and all of these things. But yes, I guess we could call it a movement, but I think sometimes it really is just what should have been happening. The messaging you should have been getting all along. Right. And I know how that, how twee that sounds, but in the conversations I'm having, I'm, I'm having a lot of conversations with young women in particular, but not just young women who realize this thing that I thought should be true, it is true. I do deserve. Okay, I'm not going to argue my humanity with people anymore. I'm going to focus on what I need to do. Right. And how valuable is that? I mean, honestly, it's like excavating something, a pre-original thing that was there before all the, um, sorry, all the shit happened. And the history mm-hmm. compounded, um, you know, what, what was happening. And then we bought into those narratives of proprietorship of black lives. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's like uncovering something. It's like going on a dig to get to, get to basic fundamental sense of agency and right worth, deservedness as a person. I mean, it really is stark when the tagline of our day is Black Lives Matter. That should be such a redundant point. I mean, how, how can we be declaring this now? It's, um, you know, but, but obviously it's necessary. And for women, I think, you know, there's that much far of a recess. Um, we just have a minute before we have to take a break. Um, I'm going to come, when we come back, Mickey, I'm, going to put you on the spot, which is you, you, you have to answer for a lot of things that I don't think really belong to you. But one of them is like, how does the disparity of wealth that we're experiencing now, you know, lend itself to fueling some of the disadvantages and inaccessibility that people of color are experiencing and women in particular? Don't go away. We're going to take a break now, but we'll come back with Mickey Kendall on Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women that a Movement Forgot, and we'll be right back after this brief message. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. 
Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Mickey Kendall, author of Hood Feminism. We're tackling a subject that is hard to wrap our minds around, but the disparity of wealth threatens to divide the haves and the have-nots in our world even further. We already know that women make a fraction of income that men do and that women of color make a fraction of what women make. So this disparity is one that is ongoing and is probably exacerbated by the increased wage and income disparity. What do you see, Mickey? What are the ramifications of this in terms of keeping alive the necessary conversations about services that are needed that are necessary? So one of the things that I think people have sort of skimmed over in the pandemic is we've talked somewhat about women leaving the workforce, right? And we tend to have these articles where it's generally women in a household where there is another income, whether his income is higher or um, they are in a multi-generational household with family members who have the money, whatever. But what we don't talk about are the women who can't afford to leave the workforce and also can't afford childcare. And those women are largely going to be women of color. There are also going to be some low-income white women in, in that group. And we are seeing now this push to limit access to reproductive rights, right? We, we want to stop abortion. We want to stop this. We want to stop that. But people literally can't afford to have kids. Mm-hmm. The declining birth rate doesn't have a mythical explanation the declining birth rate is that kids are expensive. My oldest just graduated from college. College alone has a six-figure bill, never mind the raising until 18. For a lot of people, that gap means I'm not going to become a parent. To be honest, I don't know if my story could happen now in the same way. At the time I left my ex, um, my rent was 450 or so a month. I was able to make that happen, right? I don't know if you can find an apartment now for four fifty a month anywhere in America, at least not one you would want to inhabit. I know that childcare costs around hundred and fifty a week when my kids were little are now more like, you know, six, eight hundred a week. Where mm-hmm. has not changed though is wages. Right? Like the minimum wage conversation keeps being about getting it up to 15. Living wage is probably closer to 20 or 22. But sure. I was making $7 an hour in the 90s. And it wasn't, it wasn't enough money then, but I could kind of make it work. I don't know what you do with a $7, $8 wage now. And then we look at people, especially people in communities, where there isn't generational wealth. And we don't understand why they're not doing better, why they're not doing more. There's no money to do better. There's no money to do more. Part of closing the wealth gap fundamentally is addressing things like wages, is addressing things like raising the income limits on programs, whether it's food stamps or housing assistance, to match inflation, to match what things actually cost. Right. The difference between a minimum wage and a living wage, because a living wage is different. Um, and. Mm-hmm. That's basically, you know, that, that's one of the aspects of what you're saying. And childcare, which is notoriously fallen in some settings, particularly suburban settings or wealthy urban settings, childcare has fallen to women of color uh, to manage for white women. So there's an additional aspect there of, well, I can't really have my own child if I'm taking care of somebody else's child. Um, I mean, I just saw it. I, I was just in Brooklyn and, I, I, you know, I, it was stark. Um, I think, too, that, you know, you're, you're talking about, um, you know, childcare is what I would call a predictable element of, say, the feminist platform. But there are lots of others in hood feminism that are less predictable. Um, and I think, you know, really need, need to be tackled um, to me, one of them is the prison, the corporate prison system, the system of 
incarcerating people of color and the decriminalization of some of the offenses that get people of color there, such as sex working, such as minor drug offenses, um, you know, which other segments of the population are being paid off, you know, by their expensive attorneys. So, I mean, I, I think there's other, right, there are other aspects of feminism than just the direct hits that come to women, right? And you uh, uncovered a lot of these. Talk to us about some of the other aspects that, you know, you think are critical at this stage. So one of the things, especially if we're talking about the prison and the prison industrial complex, we incarcerate more people in America than almost any other country in the world. We incarcerate them for things in which there is actually no particular victim, right? I don't care if your 19-year-old has a baggie of weed. I just don't. And depending upon the state, neither does that state, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're in the wrong state, and especially if you're in the wrong state and the wrong race and you catch the wrong cop, you might be going to jail. We've also seen officers on video planting drugs on people and all of these other abuses, right? We've created a system where we reward people for abusing some communities. And this is where I think feminism really comes into play and where I, I really feel like it fails is that we will then talk about feminist issues like childcare and wages and all of these things. And those are all important, but we sort of skim over what happens to the women in communities where they can be arrested for sex work, even if, for the record, no sex work is occurring. We don't talk about why we think sex work is terrible in some communities, but in others, I mean, you can become a celebrity for being a sex worker. We've mm -hmm. seen several. We just, you know, then we change how we talk about them. We have weed sommeliers now. We have an entire channel that has, you know, here's how you cook with marijuana playing out side by side with some people getting long federal sentences yep. for marijuana. And I think we are not talking enough about how who you are dictates, and I mean just general race and class, but specifically race and gender, dictates your class. And then that class dictates your safety in this system. You can be doing the exact same thing. They call it um, adultification um, as a black girl in, let's say, fifth grade as a white girl in fifth grade in the same classroom. And only one of you is likely to be punished in ways that may alter the course of your future. You can both get in the same fight. You can even get in a fight with each other. The black girl is more likely to be the one that we see on camera being assaulted by a school resource officer. Right. The black girl is more likely to be the one in handcuffs. Right. And this extends to young black men. This extends to young Latino and, and Latinos and, and um, non-binary kids and all of these groups, right? Oh, yeah. Where because of their identity, their behavior is more likely to be criminalized. Because their behavior is more likely to be criminalized, their community is more likely to suffer. They are more likely, because so many of them are being treated in this way, to end up in the prison pipeline, the school-to-prison pipeline. And that can start as early. We've seen this with six-year-olds in handcuffs. Oh. I mean, it just despicable, the power differential, the abuse of power, and the sense that, um, you know, I, I, these, are, these are so uh, jarring that I start to reach for um, some understanding of how all this happened. And if you, if you don't mind, I'm going to, I came across an, an article, um, but it, it's because to me, the criminalization of marijuana as you say, I don't care if some kid has a bag on the street, and we certainly don't care if it's a white kid. So what are we really talking about here that we care if it's a black kid? Um, the, the article um, is called Legalize, Legalize It All, How to Win the War on Drugs. This is from 2016 by a guy called Dan Baum. Okay. He went to visit um, John Ehrlichman, who was part of the Richard Nixon troika of, you know, Watergate scandal. Um, and, you know, he'd survived that somehow. 
So Baum says, I started to ask Ehrlichman a series of earnest, wonky questions about the war on the war on drugs, which he impatiently waved away. Then he said, "You want to know what this is really all about?" Um, Ehrlichman asked with the bluntness of a man who, after public disgrace and a stretch in federal prison, had little left to protect. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. This is a quote. I mean, that dimension of that is is pretty horrifying because the disruption to the communities is real. The disruption to families is real. So can we step back? Can we decriminalize some of these offenses and sort of change up the rules. In other countries, it's very different. Sex workers are, are protected. Sex workers have medical care. Um, do you see us being able to move in a direction where we have decriminalization? I think it is a direction we could move in, but we have to make a choice to mean what we say when we say a separation of church and state, we have to stop assuming that one religion's morality or two or three should dictate the behaviors of 300 plus million people who may or may not belong to any of those faiths, right? And I know that right now somewhere someone is going, but, but the Bible says, and I get it, but not everyone believes in that book. Not everyone adheres to that book. And I think sometimes in America, we sort of do this weird default where we start talking about being a Christian country and all of these other things. And then we use that to justify some of the least Christian behaviors possible. Personally, I read the version of the Bible where Jesus was throwing the money lenders out of the temple and he welcomed the sex workers. And I don't know what book the other people have been reading. But I think that as a country and as a culture, we should be normalizing the idea that the parts of the Bible you wanted to bring in shouldn't just be the ones that let you hurt people. It should be the ones where we make sure everyone has access to medical care, to education, to food, to all of their needs being met, because then we could call ourselves a Christian country. Now we just use it as an excuse. And I think if we did those things, not that I think sex work would go away, not that I think drug use or whatever would go away, but I think if we change the way we think about these things, we would stop thinking it's normal to lock people away for years for things we perceive as moral failing. Exactly. And what is the emergent um, destiny of someone who comes out of prison? You know, it's it's not... It's not a rosy outlook. You know, try to get a job after you've had a prison sentence. Try to build a family again. You know, there's social ramifications. I think the fact that you talk about it in this quintessential way related to Christianity is brilliant. Also because Christianity has gotten hijacked, I think, by the far right. And there's a, a whole, like, umbrella that, you know, a lot of these transgressions against people's rights are now falling under I wondered if you think, I mean, you are, you know, you are in the field. Do you think that feminism is ready to embrace some of these causes? I think it is. I think there are aspects of feminism that are not. And, you know, that is a different journey for a lot of people to be on. But I think a lot, especially of younger and by younger, I'm saying Gen X, some boomers, a lot of Gen Z, Gen Alpha, I think is what they're called, right? Um, but even some silent generation era of feminists are looking around and they're seeing the world that ignoring these things has wrought. And none of us wants to keep this one. I would 
I would hope we would all be open to making things better for the future. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's not much time left either. If you're, you know, if you're the silent generation, we gotta. If we're gonna do something, we gotta do it soon. And um, I think that you know your your book uh, goes a long way in talking out of the ideological perch and into the realities of getting involved. And what are the, some of the ways that you think we can do that, Mickey? What do you say to people? Just have a couple minutes to I the think, break. But. <laughs> I think some of the ways is, and this is most basic, it's not just the show up to vote part. It's after the voting. Push your politicians. Push them to create the programs, to fund the existing programs, to make sure that we have created some pathway out of the mess that we are currently in. Mm-hmm. And then to be blunt, especially for silent generation and boomer, um, it's your politicians, it's your compatriots who are still running Congress. Yeah. You, you, they'll listen to you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's a real disparity there. Um, you are, um, you, you have an extraordinary resume and you are currently headed to sabbatical. Is that correct? Yes. I am going to take a few months off to work on my next book. Okay. So are we anticipating nonfiction, fiction, um, incorporation of some of the same themes? It is nonfiction. Um, it is definitely some of the same things. One of the things I want to talk about is the generational differences, but also breaking that down by race. Because mm-hmm. I don't think we talk about generations in a way that recognizes the history that was going on at the same time. Yeah. Right? So it's easy to say something like, okay, boomer, and ignore that boomers were living through Jim Crow. Right. Exactly. When you talk about being nice, you know, that was a way of acclimating for a previous generation. Okay, we're done with being nice, maybe now, and that's a good thing. But, you know, I think it's great if you're going to contextualize some of these, um, you know, judgments, you know, that get made uh, unfairly, perhaps. So, We've got to take a break, but we're going to come back with Nick Mickey Kendall on Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot, published by Viking Press. It's a bestseller, but you can still get your hands on it from wherever books are sold. And uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with Mickey Kendall. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Mickey Kendall. She is a writer, diversity consultant, and occasional feminist. She's appeared on BBC, NPR, The Daily Show, PBS, Good Morning America, MSNBC, Al Jazeera, WBEZ, and Showtime. She discusses race, feminism, police violence, tech, and pop culture at institutions and universities across the country. And she's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Hood Feminism. 
the recipient of the Chicago Review of Books Award and named a Best Book of the Year by BBC, Bustle, and Time. She is also the author's Amazon, the author of Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists, a graphic novel illustrated by a Damico. Damico. Her essays can be found in Time, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, Essence, Vogue, The Boston Globe, NBC, and a host of other sites. Mickey, we are supposedly winding down from the pandemic and another colliding force that we might let up and become develop a false sense of security. We see great uh, women of color, iconic women of color in positions like the Biden administration, like Amanda Gordon Gorman at the inauguration, on the cover of magazines, Serena Williams, Alicia Keys, does it make people take the foot off the gas and sort of think, okay, we've got this solved now. How do we offset that? I think that it does. I don't know if people really remember the narrative when Obama was first elected was, oh, we're post-racial now. Racism is over. It's done. Yeah, so about that... (laughs) As it turned out, not so much. Yeah. I think sometimes when we see progress, we think that that's enough. But we can't undo getting to a place that took hundreds of years to get to in a few decades. Right? Right. I'm going to point something out now that I think will awkwardly enter history into this, but it's the truth. Yes, slavery ends technically in in the 1860s, but you still got Asian Exclusion Acts and Jim Crow and Japanese internment and the boarding schools and all of these things in the years that follow. Technically, if we're going to say America gave up discrimination in, in its laws, that happened in the early aughts as we started to realize that the war on drugs had been a war in communities of color. It's not been long enough for us to fix it yet since it was happening and was normalized and codified as good policy. Mm-hmm. America's going to need probably a generation or two of actively working to correct its mistakes to make things better. I don't expect to see the more perfect union in my lifetime. It'd be great if it happened, but that's not what I expect to see in my lifetime. But I expect to work towards getting to the goal those promises held in my lifetime and the lifetimes that follow me because if we're not constantly pushing back, we've seen how easy it was to backslide. Absolutely. I think, too, that, you know, you, you make a good point. Um, it's, an, it's an evolution in thinking and consistent effort. You've got to, you know, look at the obstacles we face now. Look at the amount of pushback there is to defying racism now. Look at the justifications that there are for, you know, violence from, from the police force, lack of understanding about mental health issues. Um, you know, we're, I think we're just scratching the surface. It's a, a little too early to feel self-congratulatory. Um, and I think that, you know, your book is going to give some oomph to the idea that these problems are alive and well, and in some cases, getting worse. Are we seeing more social services? There's been a shift politically. Are we seeing more social services? Are we seeing more accessibility in your view? I think we're seeing the progress towards those things because there's been this shift politically. There's a new budget that's a proposal that's been unveiled or is being unveiled today more accurately. We're starting to see with the uh, child payments and that kind of thing, a recognition that we can't keep thinking, oh, bootstraps. If you just use your boot straps, which for the record could only lift a foot, if they even sold boots with straps anymore, it's not even in style, good grief. But we're starting to recognize that as a culture, we have to take care of each other or else we're going to fail. 
That's right. That's why all of these other discriminations and aggressions and microaggressions are all interconnected. I think the bootstraps is um, insidious. And the, the concept, you know, I think you brought it out brilliantly in your book. This idea that we're going to do this by ourselves, this idea of resilience in communities that, uh, you know, communities of color, look at the resilience, look at the ability to bounce back. Well, this is something that is doing more harm than good because they, you know, the irony is that the accessibility for marginalized people who covet resilience and the convenience of thought that this resilience is triumphant over something is like a falsehood, right? I mean, we can't afford to rely on the few that get out and those that are left behind fall back even farther. Isn't that part well, of the narrative? One of the things- yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay. Isn't that part of the narrative? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I see. And one of the things about that narrative that's so peculiar is that planet communities of color and say they can be resilient and then it becomes a crisis when the problem leaves the communities of color. We said this with opioids, for instance. But here's the thing. Whatever is a crisis in a community of color will become a crisis for every other community. Whatever social services, public safety nets, all of these things that we decide you don't need, we don't need, you people are lazy, whatever, however we're framing it, the bell actually rings for everyone eventually. Because most Americans are not as well off, and I'm now talking even about white Americans who think they're temporarily embarrassed millionaires. You're not that well off. You're a missed paycheck or two away from homelessness. Maybe four or five, one natural disaster, one medical crisis away. So you should not be thinking in terms of, I don't need it. Those people are taking unfairly. You should be thinking, if it could happen to them, it could happen to me. And if you're at a moment where you have more than enough, you should be looking to share the more than enough because somebody may need to share with you at some point. Exceptionalism and individualism is not how a society functions, not a healthy one. Everyone gets wherever they are with help. Even if you have a very, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. My grandfather came here with nothing. Whatever story in your head, in execution, there was a neighbor that helped. There were friends. There were family members. There was someone who gave that person a job, who gave them a break on the rent or groceries or whatever, because that's actually how communities, especially low-income communities, make it. There's a constant stream of neighbors helping neighbors. Exactly. And when you think about the rugged individualism involved in the patriarchy, there's that word, you know, it really is a disease. Um, You know, yes, it takes a lot for individuals to immigrate to this country. Some of them immigrate straight to prison, um, you know, because we are incarcerating massive numbers of immigrants. And I mean, I think there you're talking about, you know, you're, you're talking about kind of a macro view of interconnectivity. That's something we really are needing to embrace in a very, very real way. It's a non-binary view. It's um, a sharing of resources view. It's allowing people of privilege to feel scared. Um, I think that that is one of the real offsets of the pandemic is allowing people who eternally felt completely comfortable and complacent to feel scared and say, oh my God, we have to help one another. Well, that, those crises are just going to, I think, continue to manifest as our earth gets sick and tired of everything. Too many of us, too much, you know, this disparity of wealth, that's not going to work. Um, you know, it's just, it's almost as though the extremes are really happening, but let's hold up this end of the extreme, the sharing extreme, the one that says, yeah, we're, we are all in this together. Um, I have heard people actually say, no, we're not in COVID together. And you just, there's a lot of work to be done, Mickey. I'm very glad you're in this battle. Um, And how do you continue to bring forth other unheard voices uh, in your work? 
So one of the things I try to do, A, if it is a topic I don't know about and someone reaches out to me about it, I am the person who will refer you to someone who does know more than me. But also, I think that we have to be willing to listen. We have to be willing to admit that we don't know everything, that we don't have all the answers for problems we're not facing. And that the people who are facing the problem may be the experts on what they need. In fact, they generally are. And one of the things about this fight and us being in it together is recognizing that we don't all have to have the same needs or even the exact same goals to work towards fixing the problems together. I don't necessarily expect us all to be the best of buddies, to like each other all the time or any of those things. But you should want everyone to be able to eat a full meal. You should want everyone to be housed, everyone to have access to education, everyone to be able to live through this without losing everything. And if people think, well, I have what I need, those other people have to figure it out. You have what you need right now. You have what you need this time. That may not be true for the entirety of your life. Statistically speaking, for most people, there will be a crisis where you fall down and you need help getting back up. You should want the help to be there when you don't need it for people who are not you. So if you do need it, it is there for you too, right? Self, you don't have to be altruistic. I will appeal to your own self-interest. I don't care why you're doing the right thing. I care that you're doing the right thing. And releasing the idea of otherness, um, facing the fact that there's otherness in ourselves, facing the fact that we're all vulnerable. I think these are huge takeaways, Mickey Kendall. I'm so glad that you joined us today on Dropping In and to talk about Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women that a Movement Forgot. But it actually goes a far way beyond that, doesn't it? It's really about humanity and getting some new definitions on board that'll enable us to actually take uh, one another's hands and um, thrive, hopefully. I really appreciate you being with us. Thanks for joining us today. Um, It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Good. I think um, it's the good beginning of a conversation and good to be in the dialogue. I also want to thank our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and get involved. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.